Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. We have a treat for you today, a personal recovery story. Clarissa and I interviewed Odette Kressler. She's the co-host of the Recovery Elevator podcast. She works with Paul Churchill, who you've heard previously on the podcast, on our podcast. And we love meeting Odette and hearing about her story. Her message of letting go of perfectionism and her recovery is so powerful. We are not all in the same boat, but we are in the same storm and we could so relate to her experiences. Welcome, Odette. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Odette, for being with us today. I was wondering if you would just go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners and then, yeah, let us know what was life like before you got into recovery. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really nice to meet you both. I know that in a previous episode, Paul was on and I've worked with Paul for a few years now, even though we have completely different background stories when it comes to recovery. So it's really good to just connect all the dots and and be here with you. So thank you so much. My name's Odette Kressler. I am originally from Mexico. I'm in San Diego right now, but I've been I lived in Mexico all the way until I was 24 and I am one of those people who moved somewhere else because of a boy. That boy is now my husband, but like that's what got me to the United States. I I come from a really privileged Mexican family where I already knew English and I had been, you know, I had a visa. It it was, I like addressing that it's not that easy for a lot of people, but I had quick access into the United States. I've been here, like I said, for around 12 years. And now I'm a mom. I work full time in a very corporate job. And a lot of my extra time that I managed to carve out is dedicated to efforts in the recovery space mostly eating disorder and sobriety as well. So I'm kind of a jack of all trades in a sense of, you know, I I know labels are important, but at the same time, I feel like I have so many, I don't feel like I have a, a title title. I have been in recovery for, I hit 10 years since I went to rehab this year. So I had done therapy before, but I was kind of bullshitting my way around my issues. It's been 10 years that I've taken it pretty seriously and that I've wanted the help for myself and that I wanted to do this for me. And I, a decade in, I'm still learning and I still bump into walls and I'm still like sometimes really frustrated with the process. And sometimes I don't even think about recovery. So it's just wild. And for everyone who's listening, if you're new, just, I wish somebody had told me it's a roller coaster because it is. But, you know, lately I've been thinking, I like telling people that the good thing about bad days is that they end. And then the bad thing about good days is also that they end. So really trying to just be where you're at and honoring where you're at while also wanting to grow, I think is just something that we all could get a little better at because it's definitely a crazy journey. (laughs) So 
can you tell us a little bit about that crazy journey, like with the eating disorder and food addiction or eating disorder, food addiction, whatever you want to call it, and alcoholism as well? Of course. So my dad's a recovering alcoholic. He's been sober for, it's going to be 14 years in July. So I'm always really proud of that because I feel like it's been... His change has changed the trajectory of our entire family. When you like really zoom out and you think of the reach and the impact that engaging in recovery can have in your family, it's huge. And maybe because I have kids now, I'm like, holy crap, like this is this is literally like that. If you change a plane's trajectory by five degrees, like everything changes. So I'm really always very grateful to him because he kind of open the doors for all of us. In my family, I have two siblings. Him and I are the addicts if we have to label label ourselves. We all obviously, as you many of you know or may not know, if there's an alcoholic in the family, basically everyone is sick with something. But him and I are the ones that are the sick ones. <laughs> the other ones can kind of fly under the radar with codependent behaviors and they don't know how to feel their feelings and all of that, which applies to a lot of people. But him and I have had real mental health issues. For me, I always flew under the radar because I'm high functioning. I was high functioning during my eating disorder career. I am a high functioning depressed mom. It's under, it's in maintenance phase all the time, but I really like sharing that not everyone has the symptoms that are stereotypical of, you know, these diseases with my eating disorder I've never been super skinny or super overweight. So it was really hard for people to even, you know, detect that something was going going wrong. For me, eating has always been part of tradition, culture. Like I said, I come from a big Mexican family. I've always really liked food. I've always been a foodie within my eating disorder. It's like two different people. But I started noticing that maybe when I was around 14, 15, how my eating disorder started was through binging. I was high-performing, perfectionist, the one in my family that took care of everyone else emotionally, not financially. My parents always gave us more than we could have ever asked for. But in terms of emotions, I took on a lot that really wasn't my responsibility. And nobody asked me to do it. Sometimes we just you know, acquire this role and we like it and we keep doing it. So it's taken me a long time to also take responsibility for you know, you liked it, obviously, because of the retroactive feedback that I was getting. I was, you know, everyone spoke highly of me. And my dad was like, you help us with everything. Being the only, I was the oldest, the only English speaking one. When we traveled, I was a translator. Like I just became this very, we need you kind of person and rolled with that and thought that I needed to be of use to be loved. Like I'm getting loved and approval because I'm being useful. Like I need to be productive or be of help to receive what I need in terms of like my emotional support. And also dovetailing into that is negative emotions were not allowed in my household. I had a great childhood, but I had definitely had one of those turn your frown upside down parenting. Like as a team, that was their strategy. You know, there's nothing to be sad about look at everything that we have, very dismissive of those feelings, not coming from a place of malice, but just, you know, my parents don't know how to regulate their emotions. So how could they help us regulate ours? But long story short, I think that all contributed to me attaching to food 
Then when I went to college, I moved away and binging then became binging and purging, obviously with the freedom that happens with living on your own. I was terrified of getting caught. So I guess it never crossed my brain to do that while I was living at home because I could get caught. I'm diagnosed with ednos, so everybody knows, which is eating disorder not otherwise specified, not bulimic, not anorexic. Like It's crazy because I've always felt like I don't belong and I don't even belong in the diagnosis either because I'm none of them, which is kind of Kind of crazy. But anyway, I just did what worked logistically. So if I knew that I didn't have access to purging, I would then restrict and and engage in more anorexic behaviors. If I knew that I had free realm and I would be alone and I would have the chance to go to the store and get everything that I wanted to binge on and then purge it, then I would become a bulimic. So it's interesting because each of these diseases also has like personality traits. And I feel like I have a little bit of both. Like a rebellious. That's what technically sometimes bulimic people are. You know, I'm like, fuck everyone. I'm going to do whatever I want. You don't tell me what to do. Anorexics are rule followers, control freaks. I also fall under that category. So I've kind of been all the things in a very strategic way. Addicts addicts are very smart. Whatever was within the possibilities of the context that I was living in so that nobody would know is kind of what I did. And because I started binging and purging when my dad went to rehab. The focus kind of went to him. I was high performing, doing great in college. Then I met my now husband. My dad got out of rehab. And I definitely have that type of family where it was thought that once he got out of rehab, he was cured. The family, it's like nothing ever happened. Let's move on. Obviously not the case. I met my husband, did not tell him I had food issues and then moved to the States, got married, still did not tell him I have food issues. And we had like our first big crisis a year into the marriage where I just had a full-on breakdown, not of my body, but I think I was just, I had done that game for so long and played the mental gymnastics with the food that I just was, was done. We wanted to start a family. Obviously it wasn't happening. That was kind of my breaking point. And also just real quick, because I do want to address it later. I was diagnosed with depression at 15. So I feel like that's also been underneath forever. And strangely enough, the hardest thing for me to manage now is neither the food or the alcohol, it's the depression. It's kind of wild. I think it's just always been there. And it was just full of distractions, including the eating disorder. But anyway, went to treatment and have been very active in my recovery since then. I was in an outpatient program. I was working full-time at a restaurant. I went to school for restaurant management and would drive up to La Costa in the morning, spend the whole day there, then drive back, work my night shift, and then do it all over again. And I know there's a lot of opinions and harsh realities about treatment and rehab. And you know, there's all types and all things happen, but I was very blessed with really great therapists that I do really think they helped me save my life and and like get my life back basically i don't think i was on the verge of dying which i think is also makes it harder to get help if you're struggling and you don't feel like you're in a place where and then in the yets you know nothing really extremely bad had happened but i was so mentally drained and that's still deserving of receiving help and changing your life so it's been a journey the drinking didn't really come in place. I keep talking. I hope that's okay. Didn't come in place until 
later because I never really thought of drinking. A, my dad was an alcoholic. And when he went to rehab, one of the family therapists told me, and it stuck with me, you're either going to become an alcoholic, marry an alcoholic, or just are you going to be very dysfunctional growing up if you don't get help? I know she meant well, but that kind of like effed me up in a way. Her delivery or maybe my attitude, I don't know if I even remember it properly, but I was like, hell no, like I'm going to prove you wrong. There's no, no way. And also I didn't want to add anything into my menu or diet that included calories. Obviously booze, everybody knows it bloats you and it makes you fat and it's extra calories and yada, yada. So I think my brain was never even thinking about it. I had two kids once I was engaging with my eating disorder recovery, got my body back in a place where it was healthy enough to get pregnant. And then between motherhood and getting my life back after having two children, it was crazy. Just the amount of stress and overwhelm. And I had to really check myself. Like, did I really recover from my eating disorder or did I white knuckle Once you get pregnant, it's like this switch goes off, which is great. I don't think a kid fixes anything, but it's definitely this weird motivation. You're not thinking about yourself. So it served a purpose. But then after they entered my body and left my body, then I was left with questions like, oh man, I'm feeling like I want to restrict again. Oh man, like, you know, I felt like some of the behaviors were still there. Going back to that place of my eating disorder was like a no, like we are not going there. And my theory is that my brain was like, we're not going to do that with food. What else can we cope with? What else can help us feel better? Numb out, yada, yada, enter drinking. Also, it's very normalized, mommy wine culture, all the things. So it became really easy for me to latch on to that. I'm a great area drinker still. I've been sober on and off for four years. Drinking can be harm reductive for me. Like if it comes down to, are you going to go down the path of binging and purging, or are you going to have two glasses of wine? I will take the two glasses of wine. I want to say this is my experience. I don't want to speak for anybody else. Through therapy, I've gone to those like scenarios. What would you do if, you know, your dog dies tomorrow? You really don't have the ability to use any of your healthy tools. Which of the lesser evils? Like what's going to take me down is my eating disorder, even though I know that drinking is very dangerous because it could change in an instant and it's socially acceptable. I can really like make up all these excuses for my drinking, including drinking's not my thing. The food thing is my thing. So it's taken a lot of therapy to even process the drinking thing because I am a gray area drinker. Like maybe I could have two drinks every day for a long time and it wouldn't kill me. But what it does to me in my psyche and in my body just feels so against everything. It just feels like my body is telling me, girl, like why, what are you doing? You know how this ends. This is not what you want to do. You're not, you know how to sit with your feelings unless it's, I always drink to cope. I, I, we drink socially, but really I feel like when you've been in recovery for so long, you know, exactly your motives every time you're doing something. I know I'm doing this because of this. And I'm not hard on myself, which I'm really grateful for. But we know, like I know I'm taking the shortcut when when I'm having a drink instead of going to therapy or whatever the case may be. So that's been very, I'm still kind of in that whole process because I'm also a perfectionist. So something that we uncovered 
recently in therapy is in eating disorder recovery, we don't count days. And in sobriety, we do. And the chips and the milestones, that is all very attractive to my brain. That is all very, to my inner child, that's very mirroring a lot of my growing up. Like I'll get the award at school and then I'll get, you know, the good grades and yada, yada. So I've had really long bouts of sobriety and then fell off the wagon and then realized that every time I recommit, I've had to check my motives. Like, what am I disappointed about? Am I disappointed that I didn't reach the milestone? Like I see, I don't know, X person getting their 10 year celebration or, you know, what are my reasons and why am I trying still to now not be perfect in my life, but be perfect in recovery? Like, I want to say that I'm completely healed from my eating crap and that I'm also been sober for 10 years that I never, you know, yell at my kids as a projection. Like I, I had to check that even in recovery, there's still a lot of my character defects that can translate and then can also fly under the radar of discipline. Like I don't have an issue using my tools and do the right thing. And it's the opposite. I feel like sometimes doing the right thing feels really wrong to me, which may be, you know, have that extra order of French fries or whatever. In my mind, I'm like, I'm recovered. I'm not hungry anymore. Why would I eat another one? because it's good and you can just keep eating when it's good. Like almost in that last layer of recovery where I feel very in tune with intuitive eating, but at the same time, it's still very controlled. So I'm learning to, for me, letting go is the biggest piece. Letting go of control, letting go of wanting it to be a straight path, wanting it to not feel the bad feelings. That's all associated with with that. You know, you can't have the yin without the yang, but I just for so long just wanted to put my monsters away and just live over here when the work for me now is making friends with my shadow work and making friends with the icky parts of me. I sometimes get disappointed that I still sometimes on Sunday nights think, starting tomorrow, we're not going to eat this and we're not going to eat this. And I'm like, what? Immediately, I'm like, you know better. You know, you're not going to do it. Like what? Why am I using my brain to think this? It gives, it frustrates me. But it's what my therapist keeps keeps saying. Like that part of you, I think you need to let her in. You keep trying to shove her out and pretend that she doesn't exist. So it's been really complicated. And once I sobered up from all the things, my depression really kicked in, like hardcore. So finding the right treatment for that has been a journey too. I've experienced experimented with multiple things. And it feels sometimes like all life is, is managing all of these things. And when you think about it that way, it feels very defeating. But when you flip it, it's also very empowering. And it's what has allowed me to, I'm like looking at my other screen and like my two kids are there in a photo with us at the beach, like all these things. Even we went on a road trip the other day and I wasn't obsessing over where are we going to eat and don't pull over there because I don't know what's there. I was so controlling of everything. And now my husband can really see how different I am from when he met me. That it's like, man, all these wins. I'll take managing all of these tools and all of these mental health things any day. But sometimes I do want to say it feels so exhausting because you feel like that's all you're doing. And then when you finally get to the bottom of one thing, then something else comes up and then you get to the bottom of that and something else comes up and it can get tiring. But also I think it's allowed me to know myself so much better 
And it's allowed me to really create deep and true connections with the people around me, which ultimately it's what I really want is to connect and engage with life. So I'm still in it. I feel like I have a really good set of set of tools and that I'm good at using them and that I'm okay with sharing. But sometimes you feel like, is it ever going to get easier? And sometimes it does, but sometimes it feels like you're stuck and that doesn't mean you're not doing it. You're still doing it. Yeah. And I think you said a very important thing when you said I'm managing it, but essentially you have the freedom to manage it now, the choice to manage it, where before it was like more survival mode. And I could so relate to everything that you shared because it was pretty much my life story, even the hospitality industry. And you know, it, it really resonates so much for me as well as a harm reduction clinician that we also have the choice of like, how do we manage this for a lot of individuals we work with? Yeah. Maybe, you know, eating that one thing to cope is not okay. And so they may have a glass of wine, but then they start to question, you know, does this mean that I have to start back at day one for my abstinence because alcohol has sugar and we really just encourage them to have that self-compassion that you're always doing the best that you can with the situation. Of course we have tools. Can we use them all the time? That's not always possible. It's Mm -hmm. not always possible. And I guess I would ask like when you have gotten in those situations where it feels sticky and tricky, like How do you bounce back from those? What is it that you, because we certainly have many individuals listening that have been in a similar situation where, you know, they they identify with that perfectionism as well. And so can you talk a little bit about some of the slips, whatever you want to call them and how you bounce back from them? Of course. I think for me, it's been crucial to make friends in recovery because I get checked in on, which I think is huge. So I think it's truly important to build a bit, even if it's one or two friends, to have someone that really you can be yourself with and share what you're going through. And I would even say someone that kind of experiences the same thing because you can't really empathize fully with someone when you don't know really what they're feeling or talking about. But for me, what has truly helped is having accountability. And with the food thing, I actually don't think I put any accountability systems in place until I started struggling with alcohol. With the food thing, I do feel like, man, what? now that I think about it, why did I always do it by myself? Because for me, the way that I've measured that recovery is, you know, I went to treatment and then that doesn't mean that I never binged and purged again. For me, the success came from Now, how often, you know, if it used to be every day before treatment and then it's every week and then it's once a month and then it's only when you have an awful day, it's like, I don't know why in my mind it was easy for me to bounce back and see like, okay, like we're just going to start again with the eating disorder. I never saw it as start again. I guess that was helpful. I always saw it as like, we can't do this anymore. We've all, even though you did it, this is not our day to day anymore. So get back to your, you know, your eating plan that my nutritionist recommended when I came out with my treatment team, get back to what she recommended. Or I would follow a lot of people on Instagram of like what to do after a binge. And it's like, make sure you drink enough water, make sure you, you know, drink some electrolytes because you probably ruined some of that for the day. Make sure you're getting some rest. 
make sure you're eating, even though you did something counter your recovery. So I feel like I was good about reminding myself, okay, we need to, we need to do the next right thing, even after you did a bad thing or something that was outside of your recovery behavior. But I wish I had someone to to talk it out with. I didn't. And with the drinking thing, I would most definitely, I didn't trust myself. That's the bottom line. I I needed someone to, oh, you said you weren't going to drink at that Halloween party. How did it go? And it it got tricky because the more I made friends with these people, I don't want to lose their friendship. So I think that making friends is such a good hack because when you think of going back out or not being in recovery, it's more than just your own suffering. It's like, man, I'm going to lose these friends. I'm going to lose these connections. And that's what brings a lot of people back, you know, and talking to people like my last couple of slips that I've had, it's immediately the next day picking up the phone. I'm really good friends with Trisha who used to host recovery happy hours. She's wonderful. And I was, I felt pretty ashamed. And I just Marco Polo'd her and I was like, shit, like I drink and I pinched and perched. I had a really big slip, not this December that just passed, but the one before my grandma was super sick. All of these things kind of compounded. And I hadn't, hadn't purged in years. Like I had just a night of like, I don't know what the hell happened. And the next day I just, I couldn't even looking myself in the mirror. Cause especially I had been on the podcast. Like I don't want anyone to put me on the pedestal. I'm like, <laughs> We're all just people here. Called her and her response was super calm. It makes sense. She knew everything that was going on in my life. And she's like, why are you surprised? She's like, with everything that's going on in your life, of course your brain thought it was a good idea to do that. Of course your brain thinks, even though this is momentarily, it's going to feel better than what you've been feeling in the last few months. Like the pain or whatever had been compounding and me holding it and trying to sit in it and be in it and process it. At some point, it's like my brain was like, we need to take a break from this shit because it's heavy. Whether that's you eat a pint of ice cream when you know you shouldn't or whatever. It's like we do when you're not when you're trying to do none of these harm reductive behaviors. You're like, how does Brené Brown say turtle without a shell? I'm like, at some point, something's got to give is what she was trying to tell me. She wasn't trying to enable me. I took it as you didn't fail for doing that. It's normal. And what are you going to do now? Like, what's the next right thing to do? What's the next right thing to do? You're engaging with me. Are you going to talk about it in therapy or are you going to avoid it? Like my friends ask me hard questions, which I appreciate. I just think that staying with your own brain, which is the brain that got you in the problem in the first place, is not really helpful when you're trying to do the opposite thing. That's why I think accountability really helps, whether it's your therapist or whoever, you know, you always, you can't find the solution with the same thoughts that got you in that problem in the first place. So being humble enough to be guided or to get help in, in a way from someone else, I think has really helped me. I think I have a low ego, which also helps. And when I went to eating disorder treatment, the first thing that was addressed which I think that made all of the difference and still does is addressing negative self-talk. I still struggle with so much of mental health, but I don't talk meanly to myself. And I'm like really proud of that. It's taken a long time. And I don't always have good body image days. I don't always love myself like infatuated, but I'm not a bully to me. And I'm really grateful that that was the 
almost like one of the first things that was, I had, there was a meter, like negative, ch- negative self-talk from one to 10. And it was the first thing of, we can't do that anymore. And I tackled it. And I think it really helps when it comes to having that compassion because you can't hate yourself into loving yourself. Like that, that doesn't work that way. Yeah, so nobody punishes themselves into recovery. Right. Right. So if you, if you have to, I think if you have to put an order on things, it's like first fix how you're thinking of everything that's happening and the behaviors will follow, or maybe that doesn't from a behavior standpoint may not look perfect, but from a, what's happening here, how are you processing it? How are you relating to yourself and others when that isn't perfect? You can't measure that, but that's so important because someone could be doing it perfectly and have 10 years sober, but they're not at peace with themselves or, or not, or giving themselves a really hard time. So recovery gets tricky that way, I think, in the non-tangibles of progress. I'm wondering, since you've experienced both, what do you feel? And we talked to Paul a little bit about this and he's like, oh, you know, there's not really stigma, but I know there is shame. And can you explain like what you feel the difference with the shame with like alcoholism and then the shame with eating disorder? Because I think they're, they are different. And I just found it interesting when you said you didn't have anyone to talk to. And I don't know if that was because it was just more shameful to you or more secretive or not as acceptable. I'm just curious. I mean, a hundred percent. It's taken me years to be like, I'd be in food out of the trash. So embarrassing when you think about it, when you're in it, you know, I've like thrown things away and then gotten them or like, even the visual of me throwing up, like putting my fingers down my throat. Sorry if this is graphic, but like nobody wants to share that with somebody else. Like it's crazy. When I think of myself doing that, it, I don't think it brings me shame. I think I feel like embarrassed almost because drinking behaviors, like what do you say when you see someone, you know, that had way too much to drink at a party and they're dancing funny. It doesn't give you like a repulsive feeling. Everyone's kind of laughing and, oh, they're making a fool of themselves and yada, yada. The food stuff brings up feelings of disgust, repulsion. You know, what are they going to think about me? I mean, and we have this world where we're fat phobic. So of course, like it's taken so much longer for me to openly say like, I've done this with the food thing, then I had one too many drinks. Like that's normalized. Anybody could say that and there's no judgment, right? So if you tell someone, you know, I like put some, put some food in the like food thingy in the sink so that I wouldn't get it. And then I like reached in to get it and ate it. I'm sure you get different look than if you just said like, I got tipsy, overly tipsy that night or something. So that's a great point. Like it's yeah, easier to was, connect. I was thinking about it and it's like, yeah, like I remember even like knowing where every bathroom was anywhere I went because I started abusing laxatives. And it's like, you also don't, people believe there's not this level of impairment that you're under or this intoxication when you're in eating disorder. But if it's alcohol or substance use, they're like, oh, they were just, you know, someone pees the bed and they're like, you were so drunk last yes. night. Like, Whereas, you know, if there wasn't that substance involved, then, you know, it would be like, you wouldn't tell anyone, but people yes. will joke about it openly. So yeah, no, just when you were talking, I started to think about it and I was like, yeah, you just nailed it a hundred percent. Why I think it's so challenging 
for us until we get to a certain place where we are able to start. I think we have to be out of it almost yes. to start talking. Openly. And that's true what you're saying though, overall in a society, it's like, well, you're in, that's the reason why they just say to people with anorexia, like just eat. Like people think, oh, you're in your right mind. You're in your, all your five senses. Why wouldn't you just do the right thing? Why wouldn't you just not eat or not purge or whatever? versus being under the influence of something. It's almost like a permission slip in a way to where, of course, you were acting outside of your senses. But truly, when you are in it, like you said, I I have blackouts, not from drinking. I have blackouts from eating disorder because I just checked. Like, I don't even remember a lot of chunks of my life, but I remember where the bathroom was. Like you said, Clarissa, like, I don't remember the big things that I wanted and should remember. I remember you know, how I got rid of the food or whatever. And it's, there's so much shame around it still. I mean, the way you look at someone at the grocery store, if their cart is filled with junk food, depending on how the person looks, like it's everywhere. Like the judge, it's not just shame, it's judgment. It's, you know, societal norms, societal normalization of body types, health stereotypes. There's so much to chip away when it comes to eating disorders. And it's crazy because it's like the thing that is killing most people out of mental health diseases. Oh my gosh. So you're so speaking our language. I mean, I think the thing is, is like you said, like labels matter and yet they don't and they're important and yet they aren't. And, you know, the hope behind our podcast or essentially the vast majority of what we talk about is food addiction. But Clarissa and I work at the intersection of eating disorders and addiction knowing that people can become chemically dependent food. And it's just been really eye-opening for me yet again, to hear somebody who doesn't necessarily identify as, you know, saying like, Hey, I'm chemically dependent on specific foods, but to hear that so much of what you experienced is so similar to what we ourselves have experienced or our clients have experienced. Right. And to know that like there is a lot of shame around it, but the more that we can name it and call it out. And I mean, I can't even tell you how many times somebody has said, like, I ate food out of the garbage. So now I have to put Dawn dish soap on it, or I have to put it down the garbage disposal and run it right away. Um, or I have to put it in the outside bin because I'm not jumping into the outside bin to go get it. And, and to just, like you said, like name it and call it out because that just, it takes away some of that shame and stigma. And I just think about, okay, this journey, you know, and to be so insightful and to do all of this work. I mean, this is a lot of years of work, folks. Like Odette didn't just wake up one night or one morning and and overnight this happened. This has been years in the process. And, you know, the thing that you said about the underlying depression, that really rings true for me because I think a lot of my, you know, acting out, so to speak, has been a distraction from my underlying depression and anxiety as well from just a lot of childhood stuff mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, so it's like this almost like self-medicating way. It's like, it's not really about the substances or the behaviors. It's really about this other, other thing that I didn't really know how to take care of. And so it's always like in this maintenance phase, like you said, yes. sometimes I'm, I'm on medication. Sometimes I'm not, I'm always in some therapy. Sometimes it's once a week. Sometimes it's once a month, right? It just all depends on what's going on in our life. Like, am I doing okay? Or is there an extra stressor? I just lost my dad a few months ago, you know? So like, that's an extra stressor. Mm-hmm. Like, therapy a little more often than if things aren't like that. And so I just really appreciate you sharing that and calling that out. I'm wondering what is life like in recovery for you now? Like are our relationships changed? What is it like to be a parent in recovery? Are there things that you do on the daily that, you know, that keep you like right in your mind and body and soul? Can you talk to us? Yeah. And thank you for sharing. I mean, 
a hundred percent. It's like identifying the wobbles. And I think that like is part of my answer. I think part of my day-to-day now, I have some non-negotiables. One of them is eating because food has like I I was a big restrictor for a long time. So eating is a big one. I actually really like food. So I like cooking for myself. It's almost like become a really nice ritual. Exercising for my depression is key. I take medication, but I can feel in my body the difference in how I move around my day when I've exercised. I'm very grateful that I never had like orthorexic behaviors while I was in the trenches of it because I'm not worried about, like I'm never thinking of compensating what I eat with movement, which I know is a a situation for a lot of folks. But for me, it's such like a, I remember when I went back on my meds, because I've also been on and off going back on meds. It's when identifying like, oh, there's a lot of transition for me, change is really hard. There's a lot of transition that's going to be happening in the next three months. Like, how do you get when that happens? Okay. I get wobbly. Okay. So how can we get ahead of it? It's almost like identifying the wobbles and then the management comes from there and the management may look different depending on the context. But anyway, I remember once going to my psychiatrist to get back on my medication and I was training for a marathon and I was really struggling because I said, I'm doing all the things that I should be doing to not take medication, but it's not working. And she said, honey, even if you were training for a marathon, you still need to take medication. And I just laughed so hard because I was training for a marathon. But anyway, she gave me my medication and I've had to be an advocate for what medication works for me because side effects are a thing. So it's also being an advocate for yourself. I do think it's something we have to do. And speaking up of like, it's not that I don't want to take medication, but this one isn't really working for me. What else can we try? It sucks because it takes weeks for it to work and you have to detox. It sucks, but it's worth pursuing, I think, instead of shutting it out. Anyway, she gave me my medication. And then under the take it every day, she also wrote exercise every day. And it's crazy what that did to my brain of like, I'm so protective of my morning block. I do get up early. So part of my daily is getting up early. I do morning gratitude. I have the five minute journal. I'm not big on like long gratitude and journaling forever. It's never been my strong suit, but the five minute journal is just like, it takes you five minutes and it gets me in the habit. And then exercising, but I definitely as a mom too, have had it felt like, do I have time to exercise today? Should I just like not do it? But that interaction with the doctor allowed me to process it as it's a non-negotiable. Like whether it's taking my dog on a walk, I'm not saying go crazy, but it is part of my day-to-day. It is part of what's prescribed for my overall well-being. So exercising, gratitude, some sort of short meditation, eating. And I check in with my friends all the time, but I do think I've bridged that gap from recovery friends to now a lot of my friends, a lot of my recovery friends are just my friends. So we're not really talking about, you know, what do I do? I don't want to binge tonight. What should be my game plan? I think just because, as you said, Molly, I've been in this for a while. I'm at a stage where I am kind of at the maintenance phase. The obsession isn't there. I don't really think about food anymore. However, I do work my recovery by talking to people in recovery because they can also identify when I'm not being quite myself and that's helpful. But talking to people in recovery, I do sleep at least seven hours. Sleep is super important for me. And I do go to therapy depending on how I'm feeling. Like you said, if it if I feel like I'm on a good stride, maybe I 
pump the brakes and go once a month. But recovery has allowed me to get to know myself. And when I know myself, then I can detect, like, I need an extra tool in the next two months. I can let go of this one for a little bit. And it takes time because you do have to kind of rebuild that trust with yourself. I didn't trust myself at all when I started this journey because I was just making all the wrong choices. So establishing that relationship with yourself again and making it a healthy one has allowed me to have these checkpoints with myself to where I do trust not just myself, but my body. I don't know how I did it before. I didn't listen to any of the things my body was asking for. I think what happens when you've been in recovery long-term is like your bullshit meter goes down so much. Like now I'm tired and I'm like, man, I really need to do something because I'm too tired. Before I could just power through. I could power through 45 minutes of a conversation of small talk and stupid diet talk. Now I'm like, nope, going in the other room. Like overall, across the board, I feel like I've just gone from, I can power through this to, I don't have to power through this. I, why I have the choice of like not powering through this. I am very intense and I don't have a problem saying, I don't want to talk about body types. Can, can we talk about something else? Or, you know, I come from a family where that's almost like the commentary. I grew like, oh, did you see Aunt Jenny? It looks like she gained weight or it looks like she is getting older or whatever. And I think that for me, a big part of my journey is like showing my kids that they need to have agency over what they can tolerate in the conversations. And that commenting on bodies is like, just not, sorry, but we're in like 2023. That's just not appropriate anymore. Maybe it was before, but now we don't talk about bodies, period. And like, for me, it's a thing. My kids won't see me being like, oh, you know, this doesn't fit well. I may still think it is what I'm saying. You don't just become this like perfect person, but it's how you react to the thoughts that I think really changes. So a lot of just, I guess, habits that keep me in a sane place. And the hardest part for me has been the opposite of that because I am very disciplined and routine and all of that. The hardest part is, What are you going to do when you can't do that because you're traveling? Or what are you going to do when, I don't know, when when there is no routine, I really still struggle because I think the routine is what has set up my recovery for success. But I would love to learn how to just flow more with life because I still see the control within my routine. And I would love where I'm at right now. I want to learn how to flow with life and be more flexible within my boundaries. Like, okay, here are my strong boundaries, but how can I learn to like, Hey, it's okay if we do, if you do your meditation after lunch and like you're still doing it, but sometimes I get really rigid still. And that comes from like my anorexic behaviors and having kids, like you don't get to be rigid. You you have to learn how to go with the flow. So I really do also think them and being part of an ecosystem where it just doesn't revolve around me really allows me to kind of push my window of comfort. I think if I lived alone, I would have this perfect routine and I would do you know, things as I wished, but I think my kids have been the biggest teachers. You know, when I, when I get short at them, I'm like, what's going on with you? It's hard. They're triggering, you know, having kids is wonderful, but they are the biggest triggers for me, especially as they're growing up. So it's hard because also it's, you think you got it. You think you got your daily routine of recovery and then it changes. So you just have to be willing to be honest with yourself and know that what works right now, you may have to tweak it. You may have to change it. You are going to change through recovery. You may be super into something one year and then totally be against it the next year. And 
giving yourself permission to kind of change your mind within recovery is huge because we do start creating these identities of now who am I as a recovered person? And you can't lock yourself into that because that is going to continue to morph depending on what you're discovering, what you're living. So being flexible has helped, but having a set balance of a set baseline of tools that do work for you, I think really helps. I think that was an amazing answer. And like, this is essentially what Molly and I talk to the people we work with all the time about like recovering reality, right? If we could recover in a bubble, right? no problem, right? I got this. But when we have to recover in this world that is is not a world of recovery, that is what makes it so challenging. And so if you could say anything to anyone just starting this journey, what would you tell them? I would tell them to get familiar with, especially specific, pertaining to food, get familiar with feeling like you're doing the wrong thing when you're doing the right thing. Like the behaviors that are going to help you when you start doing them, it doesn't feel good. So it's like we enter this and you're like, fine, I'll get help. Tell me what to do so that it, I feel better. You will feel better. But the actual behaviors are most likely going to be the opposite of what you've been doing. And that's going to feel really counter, really uncomfortable, really like, wait, I thought this was supposed to feel good. This doesn't feel good. Like be okay with it, not feeling good, but reminding yourself that you are doing the right thing. And that sometimes doing the right thing for yourself feels wrong because that's what it is at the beginning. And then it flips. It doesn't just flip immediately. Like you have to get through enough reps of it feeling wrong. It's like when you set a boundary, like if you want to, if you are scared to tell your mom, don't comment on my weight. The first time you say it out loud, you feel ashamed. Like you feel bad for doing something good, but you just have to keep doing it for that to become kind of like your new normal. So I think that we get a lot of like little memes and stuff that say like, follow your gut and like do what you feel. And I feel like we need to be so cautious of that because it's not always true and it doesn't apply always. So that... And just normalizing that it's like a lot of ups and downs. I wish somebody had told me. I did think that it was going to be an immediate relief and easier, but also not to be like negative that the outcome of this is so much more than fixing these behaviors. It's like actually a full life and of getting to know yourself and, and connecting better, like I said, with the world and with those around you. So there's so many add-ons that you don't, did, you didn't su subscribe for these reasons, but you get all of these bonus bundles. And then you're like, oh, like, okay. You know, I thought I was just here to so that I would stop throwing up, but I not only stopped throwing up, but I also made great friends, learned how to put in boundaries, know how to cope with my feelings. So it's like, oh, I'm getting so much more out of this. Maybe it is worth like the hard moments because you will, you will have them. But it just does take time. It's really messy. I wish someone had told me how messy it would be because it is. <laughs> I agree. I mean, it's like when I had my first child, I was lucky enough to, I don't have a relationship with my mother, but I was lucky enough to have this relationship with this group of women. And I just remember this, this woman just came up to me and she's like, just, so you know, it's going to be nothing but milk and tears after that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. After, and I was just so grateful that somebody had told me, otherwise I would have been like, I'm losing my mind. And, and the same is true here. Like it's, messy. Yes. Ask for help, stick with it. You know, you'll get there kind of deal. And, um, 
Yeah, you will. I just, I've enjoyed this time with you so much. I didn't know that I would connect with you. I mean, I just feel like, like I've known you forever kind of deal. Like I just feel really energetically connected to you after this conversation. So thank you so much. No, thank you. That is the beauty of this. I feel like you do find your people and I know it's so said now and cliched, but it, it, it is true. And nothing feels better than that. Like all of our inner children are like dancing in circles, holding hands and like joyful. And like, it feels really good when you get there. And it's, it's, it becomes a great reminder of like, what is possible. That's the other thing. Like when you enter the realm of recovery, you've kind of ruined everything. You can't go back. It's like, even if you go back to the behaviors, you know that there's another way, you know? So it's like, then you're in this weird, like inner debate of like, there has to be a shedding of like letting go of an identity. And and there is some grief. I also wish somebody had told me that there's some loss and that's okay. Like you do have to let go of a lot, including maybe some of the roles that you benefited from or liked or friendships, like all the things I think it is, it is also a loss, but you gain so much. And like you said, you, you end up connecting with people that you're like, man, I could talk to you forever. Like we've, we've been friends and we didn't even know that. And that's such a gift. I'm so grateful for that. I, some of my best friends are people in recovery. Some of the best people I know, like some of the people that have gone through the worst, bring out the best in other people. It's like a pendulum. It's crazy. And it's really neat to do this. So I hope that some of you that are listening benefited and yeah, keep, keep on trucking along. It's worth it. Thanks so much for being here, Odette. Thank you so much. Let me know when, when this is going to go out. I'm happy to share, happy to, you know, just talk to other people about the show too. Thank you so much for what you two are doing. Our world needs it more than ever. Same to you with Recovery Elevator and all of that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.